0: imagine waking up before sunrise. It's completely dark outside, the air is brisk, and soon you'll start to see the sunrise. Miles away, you see the sun peek over the horizon, and if you're lucky, You might see uh, some of these unforgettable painted skies that you see in the Southwest. It's usually filled with heavy rain clouds. And with this approaching thunderstorm, there's just this energy filled through the big thunder clouds that sometimes might remind us just how small we are as humans living on this planet. There's a lot of sand, a lot of dirt. And so when that water from that thunderstorm falls on the ground, there's this newly fresh wet dirt. You'll never forget the smell of rain that has come. It's the smell of hay and grains. It's taking over your nose, but it's also mixed in with this strong scent of sagebrush and juniper trees. And then the sounds that come after that rainstorm in that early morning, after it's just passed through you hear the birds chirping and maybe if you're lucky again like this kind of rainy morning you'll see some wild mustangs running across the meadow and there are people uh, who are probably up as early as as you who have taken out their livestock so this is their sheep out to the meadow as well to graze and it seems like at this moment all the living beings in this ecosystem in front of your eyes is really in a state of happiness Not all mornings are like this, but experiencing an early morning rain event like this, it's really a blessing that is stored in my memory until the next thunderstorm and rainstorm comes.
1: Hi, I'm Stephanie Tumampos, and you're listening to Down to Earth, the show where we talk to incredible geoscientists about their science and its impacts on our planet. In today's episode, we're traveling to Blue Gap, Arizona to explore how changing weather patterns are impacting water access and quality in the Navajo Nation. Support for Down to Earth comes from the Inspire, Develop, Empower, Advance, or IDEA committee of the IEEE Geoscience and Remote Sensing Society. The IDEA committee empowers engineers and scientists from diverse backgrounds to follow a career in geoscience and remote sensing. One way they do this is through their Women Mentoring Women program. In this year-long mentorship, careers blossom and friendships are born across generations, disciplines, and geographies. To learn more, visit grss-ieee.org and select IDEA from the community header menu.
0: Hi, my name is Nikki Tuli, and I am from a community called Blue Gap, Arizona, located on the Navajo Nation.
1: Nikki Tuli is a PhD candidate at the University of Arizona in the Department of Environmental Science. Her research focuses on how climate adaptation influences water resource management approaches in indigenous and rural communities.
0: The work that I do and and the research that I do is being able to give a voice and essentially a a sense of empowerment to these communities through data that they have the evidence in not only asking the questions, but also showing um, the facts and and the trends and the time series and the maps that go into um, providing this explanation to many others who are not local, but are also in those decision-making roles that we abide by when addressing some of these issues.
1: Through her work, Nikki seeks to bridge the gap between Western and traditional science knowledges to develop community-based solutions to water issues like flash flooding and drought. Water is very crucial for life and living through this world. And I understand that your research is specifically tied to the uh, topic of water and your community, your water resources, your water access and the availability of good water. So can you tell us a bit about your research and what major climate challenge or challenges is the Navajo Nation facing? Yeah,
0: this is a this is a great question. Uh, growing up on the Navajo Nation, I grew up in a semi-arid to arid location. That means there's a lot of sand, a lot of dirt. So if we're talking about the landscape that uh, particular to where I grew up in, I have experienced and seen the way watersheds change due to the the impacts of flash flooding. And flash flooding occurs when the soil moisture um, begins to decrease. And that the land becomes hard. And so the water from the rainstorms don't are not easily absorbed like they used to uh, with a, a different type of soil moisture. And so the the rains in, in a in a tense storm will come faster and it'll it'll change the landscape quicker. And some of these major climate changes that are being faced on the Navajo Nation include a great deal of these climate impacts related to water. Well, one of those major ones being drought. Now in this area, that's experiencing a mega drought. So it's saying that there's been this change of precipitation now over a number of years. It's not a season that it's been experienced now for uh, decades. So it's not only impacting the, the type of vegetation over a land, but it's impacting the type of water access, for example, available for wildlife. And we are also included in being impacted as people uh, living in this area. It's estimated that it's about 30% of the population on Navajo that does not have access to water in their homes. And so this means that people are dependent upon the sources of of groundwater and surface water that is available near their homes. And that's where um, water accesses and water quality come into play and, and the connectivity there of where not all water um surface, our groundwater is of quality. So currently, I am a a PhD candidate at the University of Arizona. And so with this university research, what I'm looking at is something called wicked water problems. And wicked water problems are essentially problems that are going to exist um, continuously, no matter how much effort you put into solving these problems, uh, what contributes to the wicked water problems? Vast landscapes, low density population, rural population, there's limited personnel, unsettled water rights,
1: and limited economic development. Can you quickly give me an example or a situation of wicked water problem? Has it, I mean, is it something that we have been um, experiencing already, or is it like, a problem that we are looking into the future? So I guess one
0: example that a great deal of people might be able to relate to is uh, related to groundwater. So say you have uh, groundwater access through a uh, a water well, and that water well has been depended upon for generations um, in this community. Now that water well has dropped due to the increase of population use, and that wa- well water has dropped to a water level beyond where the water well is going to work and it's going to stop working. And so now this community has to dig the well deeper and has to get access to this water. Now say this community is in a real rural community where the livestock outnumbers the people. And so the finances are going to become an issue of not being able to have enough money to enhance that well to reach deeper levels. Now you're stuck in a community that doesn't have access to water that once um, that did once have water. Now say you want to take that a little bit deeper and say there was uranium mining in this area. And you're living in a real rural community and the nearest town is maybe 50, 60 miles away. And this water source that you have not only dropped in water levels, but now a water well that might be 10 miles away is experiencing water quality measures. Maybe it has high arsenic, high uranium. The choices are that you continue to use that water or you try to travel and gain finances to travel farther out to get water. So now you're stuck in this predicament of um, not only wet water access, but quality water access. And now you're also being Um, looking into how do you finance that water access to where now um, that impact of um, money comes into play in um, getting access to a, a source of living that should be available to everyone.
1: So basically, a wicked water problem is a problem that is difficult or impossible to solve because there are so many interconnected factors. For example, a community being in a rural area impacts their ability to finance a deeper well. So with wicked water problems, trying to solve one aspect of the problem often reveals or creates other problems. And if I'm correct, I assume that this is what the Navajo Nation is currently experiencing? There are some places that can can be
0: included into this type of scenario.
1: So, okay. The, so these are definitely issues that will take time for us to tackle because of those mitigating factors you mentioned. And you're studying these wicked water problems in your PhD to ensure that people living in Indigenous communities have access to clean drinking water, which is super important. Do you think your research can also impact or become a model research to other places around the world that are experiencing drought as well? I definitely
0: think that it it
1: can be included in various ways for example,
0: providing water education. And so that meaning providing education that water use for human consumption is a finite resource, helping people understand and create a water savings account mentality. I was looking at gas prices earlier, and in my area, currently it's $4.11. So we go by gallons and buying gas here where I'm at. And so that's around um thirty seven eighty five milliliters. So three thousand seven hundred and eighty five milliliters. However, if we were to go to the, the gas station or to the supermarket to buy a, a bottle of water, liking it unto a, of the price of a gallon of gas, that bottle of water is gonna cost us And so understanding how much the price of a bottle of water is equivalent to a gallon, that's nearly three times the cost. And I think that really brings it into perspective. And that's what I feel that that type of water education can continue to help us in understanding how to keep these resources as stable as we can.
1: I agree that developing more materials for water education is really important. And you're also working on water access issues through a NASA initiative, right? Can you tell us more about this work? Yeah, the work that I do with NASA
0: is, again, um, looking at addressing one of those uh, wicked water components. And that is understanding that there's a limited personnel, a limited economic development and data that can be provided about what's going on locally. And essentially what this is all aiming to do is looking at empowering the decision makers um, with useful, accessible, and sustaining remote sensing information. So again, it's all connecting back to how can we provide data to answer these questions that we're looking
1: at pertaining to water quality and water access? And if I understand correctly, the NASA project you've been working on is all about putting Earth observation tools and data into the hands of the community. Is it correct? Yes, that's that could be
0: summed up in that way. But also to be included is to, to use Earth observation and remote sensing in a respectful manner. And what that means is uh, including... Um, the, the communities in these types of projects that are developed. For example, the Navajo Nation uh, Water Management Branch was included in this development of the uh, Western Water Applications Office uh, DSET tool. And so that they were included from the get-go of describing what the primary goal of this data should be, how this type of platform should be developed. And so it's really making it that accessibility, enhancing it, but also making it so that somebody that doesn't have a high technical expertise in remote sensing or the discussion of water um, could be able to use this tool. And then coming into this uh, development of a tool is capacity building. If we leave that capacity building initiative out of it, it really leaves this gap of helping reach that full potential of use by the end user. And so a part of that tool development is the capacity building of creating tutorials, case studies, how-to videos, introductory videos, and even translating some of that into the Navajo language, building up that, um, that trust. But the, the benefits of doing this is that this capacity building uh, effort developed the longevity of the use of a tool and by working with the community you're able to use these place-based approaches uh, with the community engagement and the communities understand what's happening at a local level and working with indigenous communities like the Navajo Nation this community work is is vital because we not only acknowledge the western science um, ways of knowing but we're also acknowledging the indigenous knowledge systems and so understanding that generational knowledge of the place-based approaches in addressing some of these um, climate topics also comes into play as being a, a positive influence.
1: Coming up, Nikki shares with us how she's working to bridge the gap between Western and traditional Indigenous science. So stay tuned. Close your eyes. Take a deep breath. I'm going to ask
0: you three questions. First, Who is your favorite scientist? Someone alive today who is smart, accomplished, passionate, and knowledgeable. Can you picture them? Now, if your favorite scientist is a man, tell me, who is your favorite woman scientist? Last question. Who is your favorite woman scientist in your country? If no one comes to mind, then maybe that person should be you. Help make an impact on a woman's career by joining the Geoscience and Remote Sensing Society's Women Mentoring Women program today. To sign up, visit grss-ieee.org
1: and select IDEA from the community header menu. Welcome back. Today, we're speaking to Nikki Tuli, a PhD candidate at the University of Arizona who studies how climate adaptation influences water resource management approaches in indigenous and rural communities. So far, we've learned that flash floods and drought are two major climate issues impacting the Navajo Nation in Arizona. Both are changing the landscape and ultimately access to quality water. Through her PhD research, as well as through initiatives like the NASA Navajo Nation Drought Project, Nikki has worked to blend Indigenous and Western knowledges to develop culturally relevant solutions to wicked water problems. The way she does this is through community collaboration that includes the end-user communities in co-developing the solutions. In the case of the NASA project, Nikki was part of the team that co-developed the Drought Severity Evaluation, or DSET, tool, which is a web-based drought reporting tool co-developed between the Navajo Nation Department of Water Resources, the Desert Research Institute, and NASA's Western Water Applications Office. The tool aims to help the Navajo Nation improve its ability to monitor and report drought through a combination of precipitation data from NASA satellites, drought indices, and ground-based rain measurements. As Nikki mentioned before the break, community engagement not only allows scientists to understand what is happening at the community level so proper solutions can be developed, but it also ensures that solutions are relevant and useful over the long term. So how does Nikki bridge these knowledge gaps and where does she learn how to do it? Let's find out.
0: So some of the experiences that has led up to this this work that I'm currently involved in really stems back to my childhood. Uh, As a child, I was raised in a home that looked at a, a lot of different issues uh, relating to the landscapes and to the communities that I grew up in. People have now termed these types of addressing of issues as environmental and social justice efforts. And so being in an area that has been contaminated through uranium mining, uh, through the extraction of of coal mining efforts and, and so forth, these types of topics surrounding water has always been a part of my life. And as a child, I didn't know that I was in a type of geomorphology classroom, that I was in a geology classroom, that I was in a biology classroom, looking at the landscapes and the plants of where I was. I didn't know I was already um, forming myself into a water scientist, looking at the type of water quality after the total dissolved solids of, of water conditions after a flash flood and how it differentiated from the standing water and how it was clear um, at different times. And so I, I definitely value the landscape being one of my first mentors in, in guiding me to be a scientist. And then next, coming to the teachings of my parents and my grandmothers, I come from a matrilineal society, and that means that uh, the women are great teachers and where my lineage is identified and comes from. And so my grandmothers and my mother and my father had a great impact in teaching me in those ways of, of understanding how to describe climate change impacts through indigenous science and traditional teachings. And then moving it into academia, there have been different uh people and organizations along that way that give me a voice and space for acknowledging who I am as an Indigenous scientist, but also acknowledging how to help me connect Western science and Indigenous science together to address water topics.
1: Can you tell me more about this one? How do we blend the two?
0: I guess um, it goes back into this idea of connecting words and understandings and, and acknowledging that Uh, Science isn't just in the English language. That science is in an array of of various languages across the globe and expressed in a variety of ways across the globe. Uh, It may not all be deemed as uh, being termed scientific methodology, but there are ways of asking questions and answering questions in a process that is like scientific methodology. One of the ways that have really helped me to be able to accomplish this blending sort of uh, knowledge systems is to understand uh, personally that I'll always identify myself first as an indigenous person before a scientist. Uh, if I described it in my language, I would say that that uh, so that's describing myself as a Navajo woman. But if I was to take it a step further into describing myself and how I would be identified by my community and by my family, I would say, and what that means is that I am bitter water. And so just with that explanation of describing myself to my family, community, and outwards, saying that I am bitter water essentially connects to the, the elements that I study. And I find that it's my opportunity to be a conduit, to be able to translate what those types of meanings come from in talking about water. Whether it's talking about water from the way I was taught from my grandmothers or whether it was taught to me by my hydrology teacher. They both taught me in different ways about why water moves through a watershed. And now what I'm doing is describing how I seen the water move with my own eyes on the landscapes I grew up in and being able to put numbers and letters to it and equations of of looking at how water um, moves through the environment.
1: I love what you said, that science isn't just in the English language. I think a lot of people need to know that. And that's something we could definitely benefit from remembering as we address climate change. But what's it been like working to bridge these two knowledge systems. I imagine it's it's been challenging. Um,
0: I guess, ultimately, admiration and love that I have for my identity didn't come easy. Uh, it's definitely not easy to bring up uh, Indigenous ways of knowing in a, in a Western setting, especially in academia. However, when you really understand yourself and you do, I guess, what people might call a bit of self-soul-searching, uh, that identity begins to blossom on its own. And it blossoms on its own bit by bit through various activities or various types of papers that you write or even trips back to where you grew up, that it helps uh, create that identity of a foundation. And, And before you know it, you're able to understand fully that diversity is strength. So by having that firm belief in diversity is strength, Then it's easier to see that local people in these communities have that generational knowledge that has sustained them this far. And what I would say further on finding a place not only in the researcher world, but also within communities that you work with, is really look at how to build upon that collaboration and that co-development. And what that co-development collaboration I have found is often built upon is trust uh, scientists, in scientific processes, and indigenous community has not always been a positive experience. And to this day, we are still building that trust that has been destroyed from past experiences. And so being humble enough to know that we're not going in just as a knowledge holder, but we're also going in as a knowledge seeker and that it's going to take time to develop this. But knowing our place in the cycle of building trust and and being humble and sharing knowledge and and gaining knowledge really helps in that process of of moving your path forward uh, with community work. And being inclusive, for example, if you're working with Indigenous communities, that's acknowledging the sovereignty that they hold. And so there's these government-to-government relationships and working with different elected officials, for example, in these communities. And so that goes along the lines of following the local customs and traditions of the communities. And when possible, use the language of the people in the meetings and workshops and the material development that you may be creating for these types of projects.
1: I really like with what you said about your identity, getting the courage to bring yourself out there, especially in the academia, can be quite scary. But this is what representation is, right? And how we can diversify the scientific uh, academe, the scientific field. How do you hope to continue to integrate your community knowledge into your work in the geosciences, in the water, in the drought field? What's next for you?
0: So moving forward, I think the, the work that I see myself doing is, is continuing along this path of, of what I'm developing in the university, but also these, uh, these first few steps in, in working with NASA and, and really working to be again, um, as I mentioned before, this conduit of, of knowledge that is being shared by many different stakeholders and institutions. I feel that it's a, a lifetime journey of developing ways and, and how to bring, um, Communities together, but also these various stakeholders and institutions together. And I think as long as we continue to build upon uh, this this platform of communication and and being transparent, uh, not only in research and science, but different workings within communities and and with each other, I feel that that's uh, one way um, that I continue to see my path um, going into of, of helping communities understand how to use earth observation and remote sensing data, helping people understand how to interpret water science data what it means when water access and water quality is being discussed in a community versus when it's being discussed between federal agencies. And that's where I see my work going. Whether there's a distinct uh, professional title to that, I'm not sure. But just being able to build that connection and understanding that Indigenous science and Western science isn't so different after all is where I ultimately see my path continuing on.
1: Well, that's all for this episode of Down to Earth. Want to learn more about Nikki Tuli and her research? Connect with her on Twitter at the handle Nikki Tulli. Don't forget to follow the Down to Earth podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And send some love to our sponsors at IEEE underscore GRSS on Twitter and Instagram. And IEEE Geoscience and Remote Sensing on Facebook and LinkedIn. This episode was produced by Nicole Bedford from Nicole Bedford Films with help from me, Stephanie Tomampos. Graphics and design by Mylene Briggs of Killam Media. And a special thanks to Heather McNairn and Sean Kifaver for their support. I'm Stephanie Tomampos and you've been listening to Down to Earth.